Welcome to another episode of Energy Talks. I'm journalist Markham Hislop. This podcast is all about interesting conversations with energy and climate experts from around the world. And don't forget to follow us on social media, on Twitter, at E-N-E-R-G-I Media, and my personal handle, at PoliticalHam, on Facebook, facebook.com slash energymedia. Energy.media is our website, where you'll find Markham and Energy columns, news stories and op-eds, and the Energy Student Resources Portal, a wiki-style collection of our work that's free for high school teachers and university professors to use in their classrooms. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. We're recording this episode on March the 2nd, and yesterday there was a story by Emma Graney in the Globe and Mail about how for the past year, toxic water has been seeping from a tailings pond at Imperial Oil's Curl Oil Sands Project, and neither the company nor the Alberta Energy Regulator notified the nearby Athabasca First Nation of the leaks. And they, of course, uh, are uh, get their water uh, from that local watershed. Uh, and then last month, a drainage pond at the project spilled 5.3 million liters of industrial wastewater laced with pollutants. And that's how the, the First Nation found out. They were finally, finally notified. This only illustrates a problem that has been coming for a long time with these oil sands. There are 37 uh, of them up in northern Alberta, and they contain about 1.4 trillion liters of, of tossed toxic wastewater. The industry to date has not been able to uh, figure out a way to remediate them. And I believe only one has actually been remediated, and they keep punting this problem down the road. Nor have they, I should point out, um, nor have they posted enough financial security to remediate them when they come to their end of their life. And that figure is estimated at about $30 billion, and they have posted less than $1 billion. Well, the timing couldn't be better because I have, um, I'm going to be talking to Dr. Vikram Yadav, who is an associate professor of biomedical engineering at the University of British Columbia and chief executive officer and co-founder of Tursa, a startup based in Vancouver, uh, Bur sorry, Burnaby, specializing in carbon neutral solutions for remediating mining waste and recovering metals from tailing spots. So welcome to the interview, Beaker. Thank you, Markham. Uh, thank you for having me. This is a very, very timely interview. And I want to start, we're going we're to talk about, first of all, the problems of tailing spots and with a focus on the oil sands. Then we're going to talk about your solution. And then we're going to talk about what needs to be done to scale up your solution, assuming that it works. So let's start with an overview of tailings ponds. What can you tell us about that? So tailings ponds is the is is an unfortunate byproduct of any mining activity. Now, within the context, I'll I'll explain this from a specific context of, of the oil sands in particular and mining in general. So whenever you have a natural resource that is mixed in with sand, sediment, rock, as it is the case with, uh, with the oil sands and even mining more broadly, uh, recovery requires you to use extensive quantities of water because this is generally how the technologies have evolved over time. And, and since you use a lot of water, it produces a lot of waste material that's left over because useful uh, composition, useful material composition is quite low. And eventually you have uh, this, as we call it, dirty mixture of water, a lot of rock, 
uh, a lot of you know if there are certain chemicals and contaminants in the water they all are essentially sitting in these ponds now in the case of mining these rocks they usually are having a lot of sulfides when you expose this water to the elements to oxygen to microbial processes this eventually creates acidic pollutants in the case of the oil sands there are specific compounds called naphthenic acid fraction compounds and so the challenge so far that the industry has faced is treating these uh, water streams is quite challenging. And they're challenging because of the recalcitrant nature of, of these compounds. Uh, pulling out metals is difficult. Degrading naphthenic acid fraction compounds is difficult. And then you mentioned something very critical in your question, scale. Just the absolute scale is mind-boggling, and that really uh, limits your options. So what the industry has done uh, across the board is try and store as much of this water for as long as possible in the hopes that there is a technology that comes online. Now, as you can imagine, when you're storing uh, water that is filled with contaminants, uh, that is dangerous, uh, you're building a lot of these dams. Over time, there are going to be, you know, there's a lot of geotechnical considerations in, in building these, these structures, but over time, some of these structures give way. And this is where you're having a lot of the catastrophes that we've been reading about, and they're happening more frequently. So Mount Pauly in BC is an example, and the example you mentioned in Alberta, which is very unique in terms of tailings because of oil sands tailings. So there is an, an urgent need to reduce the volume of tailings. And that means there is a, an urgent requirement to develop technologies that can treat these tailings. Now, there have been various reports prepared in Alberta for the regulator and, and by independent consultants and scientists out of the universities talking about these very issues. And the folks that I uh, interview uh, about this who work with the oil sands scientists, uh, and by, we should point out the oil sands companies have spent hundreds of millions of dollars over the years uh, doing the science uh, to try to find a solution. And... The, the folks that I've interviewed say, look, I mean, the oil sands companies seem to be very sincere about this. It's not that they don't want to. It's just they just haven't been able to come up with some kind of a solution. And the latest one, which has drawn a fair amount of criticism, is this idea of water capping. So you, you basically, you just keep the ponds as they are and you introduce some kind of a marine. Uh, and again, this is out of, out of my technical expertise, but, you know, some kind of a marine ecosystem where the plants will will filter the the uh, contaminants over time and then eventually allow you to release the water back into the Athabasca River, uh, uh, into the water basin. <laughs> well, you can imagine what the First Nations in that area think of that plant. They're not, they, you know, they already have enough issues with, with environmental problems caused by the, the oil sands uh, projects up there. So they're not happy. Uh, and then, of course, now we have this. And what do you think of water capping? Is that is that approach ever likely to be viable from a scientific point of view? So, so I mean, you 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 raised a couple of very good questions and made some good points. It is very true that the oil sands uh, operators and the companies are very sincere. Okay. And and in fact, if you look at the Canadian oil sands, our 
the investments that they have made on environmental protections is it far surpasses any other geography or jurisdiction in the world. Okay, so the sincerity is never under question. Unfortunately, water capping is is the I would say it's the best of the worst solutions that they have there, right? It's the it's you know pick 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 your worst poison, uh, or it's the best poison as we call it, and and so the the operating principle there is quite simple. The solution to pollution is dilution, as they call it, and uh, and even when they are water capping, it's not necessarily the concentration of the contaminants that they are trying to dilute. It's usually the concentrations of of entities such as chloride, for example. And so there are some very obvious parameters that we use to, to ascertain the quality of the water. You use water capping, you dilute that concentration, and then you can, they don't release it directly into the environment at that point. They bring the concentrations down, and then they flow that through as what you would call these wetlands. The wetlands are where the plants are scrubbing out the contaminants and the toxins, and then they say that this water can be released into the environment. So water capping combined with wetland scrubbing is an economical solution to the challenge that they have, but it doesn't address uh, concerns about, you know, what are the long-term implications on the health and well-being of the people, the environment that are living downstream of them. So in terms of viability, it is clear this is not a solution. This is a temporary stopgap approach because you know they have to release, uh, they have to reduce some of the volumes that they are having just because you know have sitting on a large volume is a risk in itself, and uh, and many of the solutions that are now coming on board are trying are a direct response to water capping. They are not diluting anything. They are actually trying to look at the contaminants and directly degrade the contaminants or remove the contaminants, which is a very different way of approaching the problem as opposed to just diluting. Diluting is not a solution. So if I understand this correctly, uh, water capping was the the best of the uh, the best of the worst for a long time. But in recent years, can we say that there have been a focus now on on other approaches, other technologies? Yes. and i and I mentioned this because I've done interviews in the past. With, for instance, the U University of Calgary and the University of Alberta had a joint uh, project. And the one, the, the University of Calgary uh, created a microfilm, a little microbe uh, that would eat the contaminants. And then the University of Alberta engineers designed these anaerobic digesters where all of this would take place. And this was years ago, probably, you know, five or six years ago, maybe, maybe even longer. And, uh, and I haven't heard anything since. Uh, as to whether it was successful or not. Um, is, has, has that approach been abandoned? Do you know? So to just the way, so I don't know the specific details. I do have an appreciation for elements of that method. So, uh, and that has been one of the big, uh, I would say, uh, you know, sea changes in the way we are approaching these problems is uh, microbiology and our understanding, uh, and especially the the emergence of synthetic biology, has allowed us to look at the microbial world for very promising solutions. And the answer is, and so the the, the motivation for this is quite simple. You look at these environments, uh, and as bad as they seem to us, there is a lot of life that is still thriving in these environments. So let's try and study why is it that microorganisms are able to survive and you know adapt, survive, and do well in these environments. And Let's find out what is it in their metabolism, what chemistries are they exhibiting that we could then potentially exploit. So this is where the, the Calgary team, as you mentioned, they developed these, they identified some promising microorganisms. Uh, 
they put it into a film. Now, the challenge is the second part you mentioned is they were using anaerobic uh, digesters. Now, that is a challenge is because if, if you look at these environments, these are open environments, oxygenation is going to be a variable. And when you have to design something that is anaerobic, you have to build infrastructure to enclose it and prevent oxygen from going inside. And that is precisely the challenge most of these new approaches face is how do you do the engineering to scale up and deploy in the field? And it's the second part, the anaerobic part, which presents tremendous economic and technical challenges, which is why they probably are immersed in the task still and they haven't made uh, much noise since the original technology was announced, just given how complex the task is. And so aerobic or looking at things that are that you can deploy effectively in that environment is going to be a solution. Well, let's talk about solutions because uh, your company, your startup company, uh, claims to have a solution. Can you tell us about your technology, please? Sure. So, so the company Tursa is looking at the the problem of tailings from a global perspective. So, a lot of our focus right now is on mine tailings. So, oil sands tailings is a small proportion of mine tailings. <clears throat> now, if you look at mine tailings. Similar types of problems. Large volumes have a lot of dissolved metals. Uh, it, there's a lot of sulfides in these streams which make them acidic. And anything acidic, if it leaks into the environment, you can just imagine what happens if these are going to be exposed to the environment. It is going to cause tremendous devastation. So we have used the same principles. We have looked to biology for inspiration. We have identified some very interesting microbial processes <clears throat> that are able to treat the tailings and they do this by, by virtue of their, their natural microbial processes. They treat the tailings by removing the metals and, and conditioning the water. This is part of what the process is. So what Tursa has done is it is leveraging this very interesting biology. We have, we have made some innovations where we are getting the microorganisms to function at the right performance specifications that we want. But what we have spent a lot of time on is to answer the deployment piece. How does one take these technologies and deploy them in the field? And this is where we have developed a, a unique process. And, and Tursa's uh, secret sauce is the process engineering that we've done that allows us to continuously treat tailings, continuously pull out the metals uh, from these waste streams, continuously you know, neutralize, condition the water, and then release it. And inside that secret sauce, we have developed certain special types of biotechnologies. One of them is a process called a microbial fuel cell. That's something that we use. And then there's a second part of the process, which is uh, related to carbonate precipitation. And that's the uniqueness of the solution. Without revealing any more, without revealing the secret sauce, you know, you, you, this is now patented, so you yes. keep this close to your vest. But I'm still curious about if the other process used an anaerobic digester, does your process use an aerobic digester? It does it uh, when you say process engineering, okay, yes. now so now I'm thinking, and I know this probably isn't what it is, but I'm thinking like a conveyor belt, you know, where it's it's pulling the the tailings ponds out and there's a process along that conveyor belt that does all of the things that you say. and at at, at the end, it spits out, you know, it'll spit out uh, the 
the the metals that are still valuable it'll spit out the contaminants here it'll spit out the water it'll and then you can you can deal with those once they've all been separated and and uh, and you can remediate what you can and some you can recycle and so on so so that's a long windy way of saying uh, can you explain the process engineering exactly and 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 your analogy of the conveyor belt is actually it, it's quite spot on so so you know good job on the analogy so so let me explain this uh using that same analogy so imagine that you have some water and and let's actually even make it simpler let's say you want to make soup and you want to make soup just for yourself so you kind of take a little pot you put all the ingredients in there and you then make soup so it's a, it's a small batch and most chemical processes, even when you look at, you know, things such as, uh, you know, sufficiently large, you know, digesters, uh, a lot of processes in the, in the industry, they use that batch type approach, which is load materials in, treat it or change it, and then pull that material out. Now, this batch approach works quite well until a particular scale. But when you start talking about uh, tailings repositories, and this is about in excess of 200 trillion liters globally, okay? That batch-based approach is prohibitively expensive, slow, and inefficient. So the analogy there is if now you want to make soup for the entire village, you want to use something like a conveyor belt where things are continuously flowing in. You have this little part where they're continuously being mixed. Once they're mixed, they're you know, moving down your conveyor belt. And then eventually you have the soup and you keep packaging the soup and giving it to everybody in your village. And so that those types of processes are called continuous processes. This is this is actual technical nomenclature. And so one of the big things that we've done with our process is move away from what were previously batch processes and make them continuous. And the biggest advantage over there is that you reduce the size of the operations. And because you're continuously treating stuff, it's not so the solution is not to build big and build massive, it is to build uh, these smaller units and then just achieve the continuous flow through. And the continuity of the process also allows it to be easily integrated because different sites have different ground realities. And, and that allows, that gives us more flexibility in integrating the process into the operations as they exist on the ground. And that, that's one of the, the novelties that we've talked about, about, about this process. Now I see from my notes that your your tech consists of genetically engineered materials taken from electric eels. Now I'm very curious to know what the heck that is. It's it's not it's okay. It's not taken from electric eels. So there is so, so there is little clarification there. So the microorganisms that we are using. So we are so in the microbial fuel cells where we are pulling out all of our metals. Uh, we use a specific type of microorganism that is conductive. What that means is that it is, so it's a specific name, it's called an exoelectrogenic microorganism. And what that means is if it, through its metabolism, when it eats its food, it produces an electron and ships it externally. That's what exoelectrogenic means. And in, in the animal world, an electric eel is an example. It's able to generate a voltage by itself. It can generate an electric current by itself. And so these microorganisms are the electric eels of the bacterial world. So we're not pulling genetic material out of electric eels, <laughs> thankfully, but uh, we are using microorganisms. And these are the, you know, the key piece of the process for pulling out metals. Same principle as, as electric eels. Yeah. Okay. Now, 
one of the things I found interesting here is you can extract the toxic elements that are a problem, but very often a lot of these uh, 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 tailings ponds, and I think this is true of the oil sands, there's some valuable uh, minerals in there, uh, copper, gold, silver, uranium, platinum, and so on. Yes. Uh, how does that figure into your process? Uh, so in so conventionally, if I were to take any electrochemical system, and if I if I introduce a solution inside this electrochemical system, if you provide if so, there is a concept in electrochemistry called a half cell reaction, which then is giving you the voltage of the cell. So there is a reason why when you use your batteries, it's able to deliver an, a, a current to you. That's because of these half cell reactions that are taking place inside the battery. So in the cathode, one of the half cell reactions is the reduction of metals. What that means is dissolved metals in the solution, they accept the electron, which is being generated by the microorganism. And when a metal accepts an electron, it deposits onto the electrode. And that is governed by the principles of thermodynamics. So I know we don't want to get into thermodynamics. It's even confusing for engineers most, most on most days. But that's the principle. And the way this is able to do it, now depending on the pH in your half cell, depending on the conditions, you can pull out metals in their pure form. So if you have copper, you can, you can give electrons to copper and pull out elemental copper, which is very useful. You can have toxins like arsenic, selenium that you pull out in other forms. And the flow-based system allows you to resolve them. So you're not pulling out and mixing copper with arsenic, which is not valuable, or arsenates, which are not valuable, and some other species. But because of the flow, you pull out copper at one point, you pull out another species after another point. So there is a sequence in which they achieve their half-cell potentials. And that's the underlying principle by, by how we pull out. And so therefore, if you meet the half cell potential, you pull out that species. And that species can be useful or it could be a toxin. That's the principle. Now, your technology is patented. And I guess it works in a lab setting. And it sounds like, to me, that you're going through the process and the, some of the stumbling blocks that a typical technology startup goes through. So once you've got your tech in the lab and it's ready, to, then you go have to take it out and do a demonstration project. So outside of the lab, we're going to scale it up a little bit. And we're going to demonstrate that in the wild, this stuff works. Yes. Then we want to go to a pilot project where we want to scale it up a lot more to see if it works at that scale and if it's economic and if, you know all of those good yes. things. Once you've got that done, now we can talk about scaling it up to commercial size. But you, I'm a, I would guess, are in the valley of death. And in the valley of death, that is where startups have trouble attracting capital to go from the lab into the pilot project or from the pilot project into the demonstration project. Have I got that correct? That is correct. That is, that is, uh, that is generally true of the startup experience. Uh, and so to answer that point, so far, we have validated the technology in the lab. We have been able to convince a few mines to send us some of their mine waste samples. And so we've taken those samples and so we've used authentic mine waste and we've tested them using our, our technology and our technology works as we expect it to. And you've also correctly noted the next stage for us is to 
build these units and take them to the field. So we're going to be doing a field demonstration. The one big advantage we have is because of the design, because of the continuous nature of the process and the ability for us to stack. So the way we achieve scale is by stacking multiple of these units. That's how we achieve scale. So we understand the engineering that is required to scale up. Uh, and so when we go to the field, our goal is to is to perform these, these field trials. And one of the big things that we are aiming to do, as you note, is, you know, beasts in the wild is what are the, there's only so many variables you can test in a lab. So what are those surprises that we expect to see? The unknown unknowns as we, as we call them. And that's what the field trials are going, are, are designed to address is, you know, are there some things that, you know, we can test for extremes of temperature, extremes of pH, but, you know, what happens if, if you have a, a moose come by and chew out the <laughs> tubing or something like that, right? And so these are some of these extreme things. And we want to make sure that we have a robust solution that's able to address it. Once we have done that, then the part of, you know, building bigger units for commercial demonstration is actually well understood because of the modular nature that we're tackling. And you're right, you aim to address uh, technical economic considerations, things like that. So most startup companies, uh, as they move through the stages, because of the low scale, they're very high risk. So even though they might be very promising, the reason why it is so challenging to attract capital is that they have not developed a, a good plan to convince investors that, look, this is how the process is going to get de-risked as it moves through the stages. And we, through our development plan, have been attempting to address some of those big risks. Can it be scaled? What is the economics that is going to be required in order to scale it? And most of our discussions right now with partners and even potential investors are focused on some of these concepts. And, uh, and the response that we are getting from all of them is that you know, it's a very different approach to building and scaling up a technology. You start from the risks and you say, you know, what, is, what is going to be the biggest risk for us in the field? And let's address those biggest risks up front. Whereas conventionally, when you look at very promising technology, you know, tech companies, uh, I think there is an over enamorment with their technology. They get so focused and consumed on the technology, they forget that this has to function within a broader system. And that's yes. something which is different. The consulting firm Gartner gave us the hype cycle. Yes. And 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 I think that's the hype cycle where expectations exceed the ability of the tech to deliver uh, is what you're referring to there. Yes. And, and so, okay, if as I you know I spend a lot of time talking to experts and about uh, new energy technologies, and and so the issues that we are talking about here come up over and over and over again. And in interviewing people like uh, Natural Resource Canada Minister Jonathan Wilkinson, we keep hearing from government, we're putting in place, like they're well aware of this problem. This problem has been around for a long time and everybody knows it. And the, the government now, uh, the Canadian government, in part in response to the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act and to China and then Europe, and is now uh, very focused on uh, over uh, eliminating the obstacles to innovation and to and to introduce them in the market and scale them up uh, and, and as quickly as possible. So based on all of that context, if there was ever a technology uh, 
that needed, desperately needed that kind of support from government to de-risk it until it's ready to, to go to be commercialized, your technology seems to fit the bill. What are government funders saying to you? You are spot on that. And so if, if you were to ask me, of course, I am biased because of, of the technology that I'm developing, but it is exactly what it is. It's, so we need uh, able and like-minded partners and government is going to be that partner. And government is a partner both from the context of providing funding, but also implementing some very progressive regulations that are going to make the industry adopt some of these new technologies. Uh, you know, the industry, the mining industry always uses, oh, you know, our bottom lines are going to get affected. You know, ESG is a cost. ESG is not a cost. ESG is going to be a huge value addition. Imagine pulling out in Canada alone, there's $10 billion of waste metals in these in, in those uh, tailing streams. That's $10 billion that we're not doing anywhere. They're just sitting there. And there's going to be a time when this is going to be the most valuable asset. Just so your waste piles are going to be your most valuable assets for many of these companies. And so government is an ally from funding, from regulation, and we've been having very good conversations with government. And uh, and we are, so we already receive a lot of uh, government support. We have been very fortunate where they have seen the potential of this technology. We have received IRAP funding from uh, the National Research Council of Canada, uh, we've just received uh, another funding from a from a from a federal body called MITAX, and so they are seeing uh, the immense value of the innovation. And you are right; that mindset change has been quite promising. There are some other big government uh, grants that you know, as we move through the scales, we will become eligible for. There are grants aimed specifically for Valley of Death funding for clean tech, and as we move through our gears as we become as the technology matures we are already having those conversations and there is tremendous excitement uh, across all levels of government provincial as well as federal uh, in, during all of these conversations have you talked to the oil sands companies about this and if you have what's been their response so we have not uh, specifically spoken to anybody in the oil sands. Although I I know quite a bit of, of the oil sands because of my previous venture, which was actually working with uh, Suncor and tailing sponge operators. So specifically for, for Tursa, we've not had those conversations. We've, we've actually had more conversations with uh, the bigger fishes in the fish pond, as we call them, you know, the mining companies, the majors, uh, the mid majors. Uh, and that's because some of the, the volumes that they are talking about are absolutely astronomical. And they are, they, they are the biggest ones when it comes to critical minerals, mineral processing. Uh, those are the primary uh, streams of business for these entities. And those are the ones that we've targeted. But the oil sands would be uh, the next big opportunity for us. Now, Vikram, you mentioned very specifically that capital to get over the valley of death is one issue. The regulatory regime is another issue. And that leads me to a <laughs> the, the oil sands. You know, there there are uh, academics uh, out there like uh, Professor Martin Olashinsky from the University of Calgary. He's a law professor. He deals, he specializes in environmental law. And and he's I've interviewed him a number of times about the regulatory regime around tailings ponds and the, the requirements. You know, I mean, this is they've been going on for ten, you know, fifteen, twenty years, if not longer. And they put in a regime 
and they hope that they're, they're, you know, they're going to make some progress and they don't make some progress. So then they undo the regime. Uh, there are no consequences for anybody not meeting, tar not meeting targets, but they undo it and they come up with another one or some modified one. And then we go through this, you know, it's, it's, it's lather, it's rinse, repeat, exactly. right. And, and nothing ever gets done. And we've seen on the, on the greenhouse gas emission side, for example, we've seen in other areas, when government finally gets serious about this and says, look, this has to be fixed. Here's a, a, a regulatory framework in which that it has big penalties and it has high expectations. Like here's milestones that you have to meet. And if you don't meet them, we're going to ding you you know, for a lot of money and, and you're going to maybe, you know, the other consequences. And all of a sudden, magically, ma it's like magic. Somebody waved a wand and the companies go, oh my God, look, we had this technology over in the closet here that we'd forgotten about. Well, we're going to drag that out and, and oh, and look, it works. Yes. Isn't that amazing? Who would have thought? Who yes. could have known that this was going to happen? And so it seems to me, seems to me that you know, governments like the, in Alberta and BC need to do that. They need to to finally get serious about it. Put give the regulations teeth that have consequences, and technologies like yours will be taken up much quicker. I think. Indeed, and and to give you a little context on that, there's there's two points over here, right? Uh, so one is when you talk about you know the 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 same song and dance over and over again, it's because we have always approached in in these new technology domains, regulation and technology development are approached as silos. So when the regulators sit down with the oil sands companies or the mining companies, they say let's put together the regulations. This is where we want to sit, but that is often done in a vacuum and it does not consider. <laughs> what is the current state of the technology? And so as new technologies are being developed, you need to figure out, you know, how do you enmesh regulations and new technology development at the same time? And that type of regulatory regime just does not exist. Uh, and, and somebody has to take the lead on that. And, you know, Canada being, uh, you know, very progressive jurisdiction with very strong track record of environmental uh, you know, Im implementation of good policies, we should probably take the lead over there, right? So that's the enmeshment of regulation and tech, tech development. The second point you mentioned, I think, is is more, it's, it's a broader problem with clean tech, and that's the, the, the question of mindset. So even when you talk about government putting a lot of money, companies, there's a lot of companies, mining companies, oil companies who invest a lot in clean tech, net zero. That's that's the, the hottest word on the planet right now. But if you go and ask them across the board, can you define innovation for me? You will get an answer that's a cop-out. And the answer there is, is that we have always confused operational efficiency with innovation. And what I mean by that is if you have a particular operation that's operating at, say, 80% of its total realizable potential, you spend millions and billions of dollars getting the 80 to 85%. So really, you know, the net quantum of improvement is quite minimal for the large volumes of investment. And this is where you see improvements in safety and productivity. That's very different from innovation. Innovation is not moving from 80% to 85%. It's basically taking what your realizable market is and multiplying that many fold, 5x, 10x. 
And when you go to the natural resources sector, that's a mindset that is not, it's not widespread in that sector. And that's something we need to fight. Innovation is disruption. Indeed. At its core, it's disruption. And and regulators don't deal with, they don't like disruption. Companies don't like disruption, uh, even when it might benefit them in the long run. They, they've settled into status quo. They like to be there, especially in big companies. The issue here, I think, is motivation. Because very often what's required is you have to create the political space for the policy and regulatory changes. Because as uh, a premier of Alberta used to say, politicians never lead, they find a parade and they get out in front of it. And there has been no parade to clean up the oil sands for a long time, like the, the tailings ponds. You know, there were every once in a while, there's a little buzz when, you know, Jane Fonda uh, looks out from Hollywood and goes, oh my God, there's something going on in Northern Alberta. Hang on, book me an uh, helicopter. I want to go up and check check out the, you know, and so there's there's like a week of, of kerfuffle in the in the newspapers and then we go back to forgetting about you know these things up in in northern alberta and i think we're now we need to create a parade and so the policy and regulatory folks will 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 want to get out in front of that parade and and then technology like yours will will have a more ready audience right indeed indeed that's that is, that's that's the secret exactly and and then that also and and again it, it's all about you know what the technology is capable of and and so uh, if and this is true for our technology it, it's about you know people use ESG and they they figure out ESG as oh this is something that I'm going to spend some money on and get my green credentials that's not that that that's the completely wrong approach there are technologies in the world ours included that actually are making you money through their use. And their use is quintessential ESG. Uh, imagine taking your waste, pulling out useful stuff that you sell for money, reducing your carbon footprint, making your liabilities go away. That, so convincing people that liabilities can be made into assets. And, and that's, that's where new technologies are coming up. And as you say, as we get critical mass, that then becomes a parade and you're right. When when people see parades, it's hard not to join them. <laughs> In, indeed, it is. Well, look, uh, Vikram, I wish nothing more for you than that a parade gets created uh, stat uh, around your technology. And it sounds like it may be just the thing that the mining industry needs, but more specifically, the oil sands needs. And, you know, one of the things that will create a parade is a crisis. And, you know, we'll see how serious this 5.3 million liters spill is up in the, the curl plant. Uh, one thing I can tell you is that, you know, we did an interview three years ago about a, a NAFTA, uh, it was, no, it was a World Trade or, uh, or Organization panel that issued a report uh, in 2020 uh, about how oil sands, tailing spawns were leaking all over the place. You know, yes. and and it just didn't get any traction. Nobody was paying any attention to it. I, you know, I guess it was the pandemic, and and because nobody ever pays any attention to this stuff, and and it just went by by the by. So, it appears to me that this spill is really a peek behind the curtain. There's a lot more going on back there that we just don't pay attention to, but maybe we will. 
and then maybe someday your phone will ring and Alberta will be on the on the on the phone uh, asking you to come out and you know do a pilot project demonstration project maybe even a commercial project out in the oil sands and I hope that's the case so good luck and thank you very much for doing this thank you thank you so much Malcolm it's been a pleasure chatting with you